Yes, uh, I think I'm on. Am I on? Yes. Okay. Uh, no, Jeremy, I wasn't on staff, though I it did intern here back in the days of Methuselah. And uh, Joel was my mentor. That explains a lot of what I am today, good or bad. Where's Joel? Oh, okay. All right. <clears throat> well, it's always a privilege to be able to come and uh, bring God's Word to you. Uh, this morning, I want to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you were here a couple of months ago, you might recall I did a survey of Romans 1 through 11, and now I just want to focus on two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that always gives us insight and instruction. It is a light unto our path. We thank you for it. Now help us, Lord, to give attention to it, to not be distracted by other thoughts, but by your word we want to give attention. For it's in your name we pray, uh, as we just sang to you, Jesus, amen. Sort of want to start at verse 2 where it says, Now that you may be able to discern what is God's will, that which is good and perfect. You know, normally when we think of God's will, a Christian will think in these realms is that I wonder what God's will is for me in regards to marriage. Should I marry somebody or not marry somebody, this person or that person? Um, what type of career should I have? Uh, what job I should pursue? Uh, maybe where I should live? What clothes I should buy? What coffee I should drink? Um, there's a lot of particulars in regards to God's will, and these are important, obviously, to know what is God's will in these matters. But I really think that what Paul is aiming for is that we might approve and understand how wonderful God's will is for all of us. And so is there an overriding will of God that applies to every believer in every situation? And indeed there is. In the Westminster Confession it says, we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Stop and think about that for a moment. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's pretty sweet, isn't it? You know, Psalm 37.4 says basically the same thing. We are to delight in the Lord and He will give us the desires of our heart. Um, John Piper has written extensively about this very subject. And he is basically putting into modern day English what Jonathan Edwards perhaps the greatest American theologian that ever lived during the Great Awakening in the 18th century. And John Piper puts it this way, God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in Him. We sang about it, by the way, 
I don't know if you caught it. We didn't say exactly those words, but those words were contained in the hymn. I loved it. Let me say it again. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. You know, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Basically is saying the same thing. Now, the question has to be asked is this. Are we enjoying our God? Hmm. Are we enjoying our God more than anything else in this world? Well, I am. I don't know about you. No. None of us have arrived, have we? Philippians, Paul talks about his main pursuit is to know the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says this, Not that I've attained to it yet. If Paul hasn't attained to it, neither have we. But we are in pursuit, hopefully. We want to find our enjoyment in God, don't we? I hope we do. And so how can I improve on enjoying my God is the question. Well, I think Paul in these two verses gives us three principles to follow so that we might enjoy our God evermore. God wants that. By the way, in Deuteronomy 28, God says this about the children of Israel. I have this against you, that you have no joy in serving me. Isn't that interesting? Look it up sometime. Um, anyway, uh, point one is that we need to grow in our appreciation of God's mercies. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You know, the therefore always points us back to what preceded what he said now. But it's not the immediate context that he's pointing back to. It's what he has said from the very beginning. Because he says, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, therefore, it goes back to the very beginning where Paul, in writing this epistle to the Romans, he is writing to let them know what the gospel, the unabridged gospel is. In fact, in verse 3, Paul says, concerning the gospel, which is the person of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. I want to share this with you, he says in verse 15 of chapter 1. Um, maybe we should turn there, just so you don't think I'm making this up. He starts out in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel now concerns his son, who descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection, that is Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So for the next 11 chapters, the apostle is going to explain, again, the unabridged gospel. Um, the gospel is actually a three-part harmony. I've said this before the last time I preached. If you want to, if, remember Jonathan Lawson, uh, the, the guy who promotes health ins or life insurance on TV. You've all seen the commercial, right? I got three Ps. Price, price, price. Well, the unabridged gospel is three Ps. Number one is that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. That's the doctrine of justification. 
we've been delivered from the power of sin, that is sanctification. And eventually we will be delivered from the presence of sin, that is glorification. So that is what Paul is talking about in these 11 chapters. And this is amazing mercies that God has shown to us, is it not? We were all destined for an eternal damnation. And yet, by God's mercies, we have been delivered from that and will be ushered into His eternal paradise. Amen? You know, Paul is so excited about this as he explains these mercies to the children of Israel that he just can't go any farther when he comes to the end. He just has to praise God and he says this, Verse 33, chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. He can't contain himself anymore as he stops and considers these amazing mercies of God, sometimes that we simply take for granted. You know, Martin Luther said in the preface of his commentary on Romans, he said, you need to read this and reread it and reread it because it is so sweet, isn't it? We need to be reminded of the mercies of God. And now notice that Paul, when he says this, he doesn't give an altar call to unbelievers. He gives a worship call to believers. Brethren, offer yourselves to God. It's your only reasonable worship. You know, it's sort of interesting that many times Christians think the gospel is for unbelievers, and it is, rightfully understood, and that the law is for believers. Uh, It sort of is, but Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, that the law is for the unbeliever, and the gospel is for the believer, right? He just explained it. You know, he says, oh, brethren, now, this is what I want you to, I want you to worship our God. I want you to enjoy him. Let me illustrate how this works, actually, in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, as I said, Paul there is explaining that we have been delivered from the power of sin. What then? Should we continue to sin that God may be, that God's grace may abound? He says, God forbid, don't you know that because of our union with Christ, we have died to sin, we have been set free from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 8. And uh, so um, this is a wonderful truth, a wonderful description of God's mercies to us that he has delivered us from the power. It doesn't mean that we are sinless. It just means that we now have the ability to say no to sin. In the book of Titus, Paul says there that the grace of God has appeared teaching us to say no to sin. You see the principle. But then when it comes to Romans 7, it's almost as if he had forgotten what he said in Romans 6. As he is studying the scriptures, he comes across the, the commandment, thou shall not covet. What is coveting? Coveting is putting anything or any person ahead of God. And it is usually displayed in our lives in that we are dissatisfied with our circumstances. 
more sort of like this. If I, my circumstances would change, I would be happier. You know, God, if you would change my circumstances, I'd love you more. That's covetousness coming out. Have you ever coveted? Once again, as a pastor, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> no, <clears throat> my wife has threatened to put on my gravestone uh, these words that I say so very often. If I were independently wealthy, <laughs> I would be on a golf course right now in Florida. But uh, <laughs> So the Apostle Paul realizes, now he's speaking as a believer, and he comes across the commandment, thou shalt not covet, and he goes, you know, that's not right. It's not right for Pastor Terry to say if, if I were independently wealthy. You know, I get it. You know, I agree with the law because the law is holy and righteous. It's a reflection of who God is. It's a reflection of what God's will is for my life. I understand, Lord, that I should not covet, but I still covet. You know, Terry, if you would just try harder not to covet, okay, I'm going to try harder not to. Don't think that, Terry. Don't think that. But I think that. Um, so that's what Paul struggled with. I agree that it's bad. I desire not to do it. I don't want to do it. I delight in the law, but I can't do it. He says, the good I want to do, I don't do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. Ever been down that road? Yes. Every Christian should have been down that road at some time. You know, here's some of the options at that particular point is that we deny that I'm covetous. Oh, I, I gave up that sin a long time ago. You know, there are certain sins that you can give up, and then there are certain sins that are always just there. They're always there, like covetousness, like pride. Anybody conquered that? The minute that you assume that you have, you become a Pharisee. You see? That's not my problem. You adjust your halo and move on and think, well, see, I've conquered that one. No, it, it, it's always chomping at our heels. And uh, so then another response is, this, oh, you know, this Christian life is too hard. I just give up. You know, I've tried to do it. You know, I'm, I can't do it anymore. I'm not going to go to church. But you're here, so you're still in the ball game. But, you know, here's what the Apostle Paul does. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I wonder what the answer is. Glory be to Jesus Christ, who has delivered me from the body of death. You see, he's applying what he said earlier in Romans chapter 6. Christ is the one who has delivered me from this body of death. I forgot that. Thank you, Lord. And then he goes on this tirade, actually, a wonderful tirade of Romans chapter 8. It's the great love chapter of the Bible. It's not 1 Corinthians 13. That's the love chapter with one another. Romans chapter 8 is the great love chapter of God's love for us. And so he gets enthralled with the mercies of God. God's great, amazing love. In spite of my struggle with sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for me, who is against me? I am more than conquerors through Christ who loved me. Nothing will separate God's love from me. Thank you, Lord. You see, and it's the mercies of God which is the impetus for us to live a holy life. 
It's not the law. The law condemns us. It's the mercies of God that that, uh, urges us on. You know, in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I mean, I know that this is many times used for unbelievers, but it's also for believers. Come unto me, you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my work is easy and my load is light, and I am gentle. See, the law is demanding and condemning. Jesus says, you can do it. Come on. In fact, Paul uh, practices it here. He says, I beseech you, brethren. He doesn't say, I demand you. I beseech you. You see, it's this attitude of mercy. You know, when Paul was addressing the Thessalonians, he says this, We prove to be an encouragement of, of you, with you like a father with his son. I assume a good father, because there are fathers who are very critical. He says, We prove to be gentle among you like women with nursing babies. Don't we respond much more to a person who, is in, who thinks, you may, not, you may be struggling, but you can do it. You know, when I was in high school, um, I had football coaches who were, I played football in college. I know that may be shocking to you by looking at me now, but I actually did. And, but my, foot, my high school football coaches were the best coaches I ever had. And one of the greatest motivating coaches I ever had was when I was in sophomore. And uh, it would be something like this, you know, Terry, you did good on that play, but I know you can do better. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You know, by the end of the season, you would run through a garage door for that coach. And that's the tone that Paul uses here with the brethren. I know you can do it. I know that you can live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, I guess I need to get a bigger ear in order for this to work properly. Um, And so he beseeches the brethren. Um, Again, the idea here is as we increase in our understanding of the mercies of God, it, in, it compels us to live a sanctified life. So now, he says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Um, it could also, you could also see, say, yield our members unto God, present ourselves unto God, Excuse me. Sacrifice obviously is a good term, and we, we normally think immediately. Well, this is oh, see, I got a sacrifice to God. This is this is a downer. You know, I'm gonna you know Lent. Got to give up certain things. You know, sacrificing is sort of a negative connotation. But we have to understand that when we give of ourselves to God, we can never outgive Him. This is true monetarily speaking, by the way. In the book of Malachi, where the children of Israel were not giving appropriately, God says, hey, why don't you challenge me? See if you can outgive me. In fact, test me to see if you can. Now, if that is true monetarily, how much more morally, God says, give of yourself to me and see if you can outgive me to you. In other words, in James, it says this, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Right? Yes, right. Sound Jewish. Yes, right. That's what it says in the book of James. In other words, as we offer ourselves more to him, God offers more of him to us, which is a pretty sweet deal. Because in Psalm 16, it says, in thy presence are pleasures forevermore. 
Or Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, it's not a, the only thing that we're really giving up is our own selfish pleasures. For pleasures that are unimaginable into the very presence of our God. You see, we're not really giving up much at all. We're gaining abundantly, above and beyond whatever we could think or imagine. As I stop and ponder this, I think, oh, Terry, why don't you do it more? Right? And he says this, to offer ourselves a bodily sacrifice. A bodily sacrifice. You know, in the Greek culture, the body was considered to be evil. Therefore, when you died, you wanted to get rid of the body. And and while you were still living, um, you could use the body any way that you want because eventually it's going to be destroyed. So it gave license to all sorts of of moral uh, fornications and so forth. And uh, so the Greek culture was very immoral, as we know, for instance, from the book of Corinthians. And... um, but biblically speaking, the body is good. Um, it is in process of decaying, but one day we're going to have a glorified body and a body that's not going to die, it's not going to be ravaged by disease, it's not going to tire. Uh, apparently we can still eat. Jesus did with his glorified body. If we can't eat animals, I'm hoping that some vegetable tastes like pork ribs. That's all all I'm saying. I'm sure that there would be, right? Um, But if we are to offer our bodies, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians, it says that our bodies are a temple of the Lord. And... uh, what he means there in that context is that we are to uh, use our bodies in a moral way, not in an immoral way. Sometimes Christians will take a passage like that and say, see, you can't eat this or eat that. Uh, <clears throat> I could wax on for a long time there, but uh, because my wife says, don't eat that, don't eat this. Um, but Uh, It's not really about food, though if you don't want to eat certain foods for health reasons, that's entirely up to you. But Jesus did say we could eat anything if he said it. So, all right, I'm going to eat anything I want. Um, So anyway, uh, but it really has to do with sexual immorality. So that uh, any premarital sex, extramarital sex, same-sex is wrong because our bodies are a temple of the Lord and God said it is wrong. Therefore, for a person to be practicing those sexual sins and saying that I am worshiping God with a clear conscience is deceived because we are to offer our bodies. Paul talks about this with the Thessalonians. We are to know and how to handle our bodies sexually. And of course, all different types of sins flow out from our bodies. That's why the little kid's song is, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little feet where you go. And so, because Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful with your body what you do. That's my version. (laughs) 
So then the third principle that he lays down here really ties in with the second one as well, is that do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Um, so he states it negatively and then positively. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, we could give a thousand different illustrations about being conformed or how we are conformed to this world. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Romans, which, by the way, is an excellent commentary, he boils it down into isms, uh, worldly isms, like there's materialism. I'm not even going to touch that. We all know about that. Well, um, that we don't make the material things our main pursuit, uh, that we still make God our main pursuit. Obviously, we need monies, but um, that is not our main pursuit, as Paul would say in First Timothy, because those who make it their main pursuit are going to pierce them through with many pain. So don't set your hope on the world's riches, but on uh, the eternal city where God is the author and architect of it. Um, he talks about another ism, that is relativism, that is the denial of eternal uh, principles or morality. Uh, closely tied with that is secular humanism, um, which when you would, probably in evangelicalism, you know, we follow the word of God, but if man has a different point of view, we're going to assume that man's point of view trumps the Word of God. Uh, this is uh, a dangerous mentality in churches. Let me give you an example of this. You know, it's always nice uh, when you can preach somewhere else than the church that it happened at, because you don't know the people. Um, and the illustration I'm going to use, you're going to think, wow, is that really true? Yes. This is really true. Um, I had started a, a ministry in St. Louis and uh, been there for a short period of time, and a couple comes into my, church, into my office. I really did not know them and, um, because I was new, and they were having marital problems. And I'm going, oh, brother. You know, at one time I thought I wanted to be a counselor until I started counseling married people. And it's like, God, thank you for delivering me from that. Because, because uh, you can't win many times in a situation like that. You know, she doesn't like what he's doing. He says that she's a shrew. And pastor, what should we do? And, you know, like King Solomon, I said, well, cut her in half. No, <laughs> no I, I didn't say that. <laughs> But you need the wisdom of Solomon to be able to figure these things out. And, uh, and he was a Christian counselor, by the way. And uh, I said, you know, I really don't know either one of you very well, but I do know what you need to do, pointing to the guy. I said, you are to love your wife like Christ loves the church. And he immediately responds, No! There's not one psychologist that would agree with what you have just said. And I said, I don't care if there's no psychologist that agrees with what I just said. I know what the Bible says, that you are to love your wife like Christ loved the church, even though she's a shrew. <clears throat> well, they left my office in a huff. They eventually got divorced. Um, and then he remarried and got divorced again. 
Now here's the flip side of the coin. Another couple comes into my church, and I, know, I knew them much better, and they were having marital problems. Actually, it was just the guy that came in at first, and he said, my wife is a shrew. Uh, I believe that she was a believer, but she had gotten uh, caught in the sin of alcoholism. She was an alcoholic. She was verbally abusive. She was physically abusive. And her husband, I would not want to meet in a dark alley. So when I say she was physically abusive to a guy that could easily uh, pummel me, and uh, she was also an adulteress, and uh, so he's talking about this. Of course, his heart's broken over all of this, and his family's in disrepair, and they have three children, or two at the time. And, and I said, you know, you have a biblical right to divorce your wife because she is practicing adultery. And he says, you know, I really don't want to do that. I know that I have the right to do it, but I really feel compelled I need to love my wife like Christ loves the church. And he did. And uh, eventually, she got help. Uh, She was able to deal with her alcoholism. Uh, She remains faithful to her husband to this day. And with all of the problems they had, they have a relatively happy marriage. And two of their children are now on the mission field. You know, if he had followed the secular mentality, could have easily divorced his wife and all of that would have gone down the drain. Instead, he did what God said he should do and they are presently being blessed. You know, there's another ism that is even more cynical that has entered into the church. And I'll mention it because I'm a visiting pastor, so if you don't like it, tough, you know? (laughs) It's wokeism that has overtaken our culture. And uh, it has creeped into the church. And heavyweight theologians, uh, I've I've been listening to this on YouTube, and uh, men that I greatly respect their theology are... are, uh, being uh, uh, affected by wokeism. Let me, let me just give you a couple of examples. Again, there'd be uh, thousands of them. Um, uh, our former church, um, I was an associate at the time, and it was on a Sunday morning. We were at a, a, a church-wide camp, and I was leading people's testimonies. They would give testimonies, and I would just call on people. And... and uh, this was during the, all of the riots that were happening at the time and, and uh, defunding the police and all of that type of stuff. And, and uh, a guy stands up. He's 6'5", probably weighs 360 pounds, and he's a policeman and in uh, uh, St. Louis area. And he stands up and he starts, he's, he's, he's tears in his eyes, and he said, it is so tough for me to be a policeman. He wants to be a good policeman. He's a believer. He wants to protect and serve people. But he says it is just becoming almost unbearable. And I said something that greatly offended the lead pastor. I said, defunding the police is crazy. 
It's a crazy idea. It's an unbiblical idea, by the way. And I was reprimanded at the staff meeting. And uh, really, I could have said, it's a foolish idea? Uh, crazy, is it? I do have some uh, vindication. I was reading Erwin Lutzer's book, We Will Not Be Silenced. And on page 186 in the upper left-hand corner, he says, defunding the police is a crazy idea. <laughs> Climate change is another woke-ism Uh, You probably have already heard this said. The only climate change that's really going to take place is when this present earth is going to be under fire. Until then, I wouldn't get upset about it. Because it becomes a political thing. Uh, Marxism, again, is an anti-God philosophy. Um, If you don't believe that, I would just encourage you to look it up because it's an atheistic point of view. So anyway, don't be conformed to this world's thinking because this world's thinking uh, affects every one of us. We have to be on guard that we're not falling prey to these isms out there. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, the way that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind is obvious for every one of us who are here. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe this, is by the word of God, right? Um, God instructs the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, I let you go without so that you might learn to live by the word of God, not by bread alone. Uh, Joshua, when they go in the promised land, God says to Joshua, meditate upon the word of God day and night so that you might have success. Uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, I know that from my grandkids, Jeremy preached on Psalm 119, blessed are you, 176 verses that deal with the greatness of the word of God. Psalm 19 tells us, it's more than the abridged if you want to do the unabridged. Uh, tells us what the Word of God does to us. It enlightens us and so forth and so on. Uh, or you could appeal to 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for training, for correction, for reproof. Um, so if we're going to have a transformation of our minds, we need to be in the Word of God, period. However, having said that, The reason that we are in the Word of God isn't just for information. We probably all know of people who know a lot about the Word of God, but they aren't practicing the Word of God. I can think of a guy in my my mind right now who was a lawyer, a Christian lawyer. I know it's an oxymoron. Is there any lawyers here? Sorry, sorry. Just just kidding, just kidding. Uh, um, Christian lawyers we need more of. Um, but uh, he knew the Bible frontwards and backwards, but was a terrible, terrible husband and eventually divorced his wife and justified it. So we don't read the Word of God just for information. We're reading the Word of God ultimately for transformation. We want to be transformed to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
He says, remember when Moses came down from the mountain and his face glowed with the reflection of God's glory and the children of Israel were afraid and so he put a veil over his face? But when he talked to them, he removed the veil and then when he finished talking with them, he put the veil over his face so that they might not see the passing glory. But when you look at Jesus Christ, the veil is removed and as we see the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are transformed. That's our first point. As we see the mercies of God and so forth, we are being transformed. So that our goal in reading the Scriptures is always to see the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is pretty evident, obviously, in the New Testament. Again, Pastor Jeremy is going through the Gospel of John, uh, a great uh, gospel in fact, my granddaughter said, you know, my, my favorite book of the Bible is the Gospel of John. Why is that? Because Pastor Jeremy is preaching it. Blessed are you. you see, little kids listen to pastors, believe it or not. It's the older generation I'm concerned about. <laughs> they fall asleep. <laughs> Though I noticed nobody's falling asleep here this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> But in the Old Testament, it's a little bit more difficult to see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that the law and the prophets point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, for instance, the Day of Atonement points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, points to Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, Daniel preached on that. On Friday night. Those are more obvious ones, but there are more places than that. And Jesus expects us, by the way, to know these Old Testament passages. Remember when he was on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and the disciples were disheartened because they thought it was all over, and uh, Jesus revealed himself to them. And then he says, Oh, you men slow of heart and not to know and understand all that has been written about me in the Old Testament. Is it? We're supposed to know Jesus Christ from the Old Testament as well. Even though, again, sometimes it's hard. We're not suggesting allegorism that we sort of make up things. But let me just give you an illustration other than the ones I just gave to you. In the book of Jeremiah, if you decide to wade through that, uh, the first several chapters, and in fact, most of the book of Jeremiah deals with judgment. And you're just going, oh, Here's another chapter about judgment, judgment. And uh, which, by the way, is really part of the gospel. You might recall in Romans chapter 1 through 3, Paul talks about uh, the wrath of God and uh, being displayed upon mankind. He spends three and a half chapters on that. What he wants to show mankind is that we have a huge problem and we can't solve it. Only Jesus Christ can. And so Jeremiah has that before Paul ever came along, so that uh, chapter after chapter is this judgment upon the nation of Israel because God wants to show, you have a huge problem. You have broken the covenant with me, the Mosaic covenant. But hey, I got great news. Read Jeremiah 31, 31. A new covenant's coming on the way. It's going to be inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, his mercies, you see. Thank you, God. 
Thank you for these undescribable mercies that you have shown to us over and over again. Oh Lord, I love you because you have loved me first. Oh Lord, I desire to keep your commandments and they are not burdensome because I understand your mercies that helps me every step of the way. Oh Lord, you are my delight. You are my delight. So that we end with this, as Paul did. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And God's people said, Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Might we come to an ever greater appreciation of what you have done for us. And never assume it. Every day, Lord, we want to delight in you. We need to rehearse it every day because it seems by the end of the day, the world has battered us down. And we need to come to a greater appreciation of your mercies and then to yield to you and have a transformation of our minds through your word for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray, amen. As the praise team leads us in song.